Recently, European countries' leaders have been making unforeseen steps to acknowledge their history of colonization, particularly in Africa. Some leaders have made public statements, and others have arranged trips throughout the continent to express their sentiments, putting conversations about reparations at the forefront of international politics. This has raised questions regarding the impacts of European colonialism in Africa and its legacy, which brings us to ask how we got here and where we may be heading next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballion. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Iman Fatima. Hi, Iman. Hi. And focusing on the international aspect today is Soraya Kavili. Hi, Soraya. Hello. All right, so before we get into the discussion at hand here, I want to turn to you, Iman, and just ask about some background information as a domestic analyst, um, just to kind of contextualize us in this conversation we're going to be having today. So can you start us with walking through the history of colonialization in Africa? Yeah, for sure. The history of Africa started around 300,000 years ago, so how is it still struggling to develop? Are we failing to understand the gap between decolonization and the post-colonial effects of Africa? There are two main strands of thought when explaining underdevelopment in Africa. The typical individualistic analysis is that the policy choices of elites and flawed institutions can explain low economic development. At the same time, for some scholars, African countries are a product of forbidding geography and circumstances that are out of the control of African leaders, that is, colonialism. External and internal factors within the region influence the interpretation of a country's history. However, what often goes unnoticed is that many internal factors, such as flawed institutions, power-hungry leaders, and persistent corruption, can be attributed to post-colonial effects, which are essentially external factors. The presence of corruption and the insatiable hunger for power are not solely driven by self-interest but are rooted in deep psychological motives. The leaders of Africa are following a similar pattern of greed and hylation that the colonizers left behind, affecting the region and its people. Historical and current studies on Africa continue to reflect the long-standing effects of an incredible catastrophe of the colonial past. It is crucial to recognize that Africa was not always in this state. The result of European colonialism and international intervention has shaped the region into what it is today. Absolutely. And we'll be getting into some of the effects of that colonialization um, here in a little bit. So in the past, what have we seen in the way of colonizers accepting the responsibility and addressing their histories? as that what we're talking about today. So in 2019, Belgium's King Philip expressed his deepest regrets for the colonialism committed during the colonial era in the Congo, particularly during the rule of King Leopold II. This acknowledgement was significant as it marked a formal recognition of the violence and exploitation that occurred during Belgium's colonial rule. In 2021, French President Emmanuel Macron acknowledged that France bore responsibility for the torture and death of Algerian freedom fighter Ali Bo Menjil during the Algerian War of Independence, 1954 to 1962. Macron's statement was part of broader efforts to confront France's colonial past and address historical injustices. In May 2001, Germany officially acknowledged that the colonial era of the Herero and Nama people in Namibia from 1904 to 1908 constituted genocide. Germany's acknowledgement came with a formal apology and commitment to provide financial reparations to Namibia for development projects. In 2013, the UK government formally expressed sincere regret for the abuses suffered by Kenyan detainees during the Mau Mau upspringing 1952 to 1960. 
The acknowledgement included a compensation package for the surviving victims recognizing the injustices committed during the colonial period. Portugal, which had been reticent about its colonial past, has seen increased public discourse acknowledging the impact of colonialism. While there may not be a single formal acknowledgement, there have been calls within Portugal for a more open discussion about the country's colonial history, particularly its former African colonies. So this acknowledgement isn't totally a new thing. It's something that's been coming up in recent years as discussions on colonialism has been more open and um, having more diverse point of views. So it's definitely something we'll get into later in the discussion. We get more about the recent acknowledgements we'll be looking at today. And so just tell me real quick, what is the significance in countries acknowledging their histories of colonialization? So acknowledging historical injustices can potentially reshape the dynamics between formal colonial powers and their formal colonies in several ways. Improved diplomatic and economic cooperation may emerge, fostering collaboration on trade, development projects, and cultural exchanges for mutual benefit. Acknowledgement might also prompt discussions about reconsidering or redrawing colonial era borders, aligning them more closely with culture and historical realities, thereby contributing to regional stability and addressing historical grievances. Educational initiatives fueled by acknowledgement can promote a more accurate understanding of history, fostering empathy and tolerance, resulting in a more informed and engaged citizenry contributing to social cohesion. Discussions on reparations for historical injustices, whether through financial compensation or alternative form of redress, may be spurred by acknowledgement, potentially taking the shape of investments in structure, healthcare, or education to address the long-term consequences of colonialism. Accompanying truth and reconciliation process can provide victims and their descendants a platform to share experiences, contributing to healing and understanding for a more inclusive and just society. All right. So thank you for contextualizing, you know, the whole conversation we'll be having today about colonialism, what that means in Africa, and how a lot of European powers are starting to acknowledge that past. So I want to turn to you, Soraya, now and talk about just investigating European colonialism on a whole. So could you shed some more light on the recent acknowledgments and apologies coming from the former colonial powers? Sure. Um, recent acknowledgments coming from the colonial powers include Spain, Portugal, France, Great Britain, and Denmark. While some of these countries have also spoken about reparations and actual apologies, other ones realize that it does impact history, but do not believe that we should stay in the past. Or instead of moving forward, we shouldn't be focusing on things that happened in the past. Gotcha. And so what specific countries have recently made these public statements regarding their colonizing past? And, you know, what are the details around those? Specifically, we have heard from the president of Portugal, both the British prime minister and the British royal family, as well as the Dutch royal family. And could you give us some details about what they've been saying, what they've been doing, some of the efforts going into those acknowledgments? Of course. So for the Dutch, the Dutch royals embarked on an educational tour of the Slaves Lodge in Cape Town, South Africa this past October. It is a site where Dutch colonists enslaved thousands of Africans, Asians, and indigenous people for about 350 years. During the visit, the Dutch king asked for forgiveness on behalf of his ancestors and stated that we share a history which for over a century and a half was marked by colonialism, abuse of power, and slavery. Its traces are still viable and tangible in many places. Leaders in South African government have stated that we wanted them to compensate us with projects like hospitals, education, and especially our minds, which were taken away from us. Today, our people are poor. They still suffer from the psychological scars of colonialism and apartheid. 
Gotcha. And you mentioned Britain and the UK Prime Minister? Yes. So the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has rejected a call to apologize for and offer reparatory services to victims of the British slave trade and imperialism. His basis was that trying to unpick our history is not something the government should focus on. The Hairs of Slavery movement, an activist group created by descendants of British slave owners, urges the British government to acknowledge their role in the abuse and transportation of 3.1 million enslaved Africans across the Atlantic Ocean. Other African countries who are also connected to British colonialism have stated that there are wrongs in today's world that derive from the exploitation of African people and their descendants by Britain and other former colonial powers. We believe it's important to acknowledge this crime against humanity and address its ongoing consequences. As for the British royal family, contemporary members including Prince William and Prince Harry and the late Queen Elizabeth have expressed sadness about their links to the slave trade, but have never actually apologized for the direct role that their ancestors played. Gotcha. So we're seeing pretty similar rhetoric across a lot of these. Um, I know you mentioned Portugal as well. Yes. So unlike the British royal family and the UK government, President Rebelo de Suasa of Portugal publicly announced that his country owes an apology for colonialism and must fully assume responsibility for the exploitation of people that took place as a result. He acted by showing he truly cared by meeting with Brazil's president to help him restore Brazil's presence on the international stage. President Rebelo stated that colonialism of Brazil positively created language, culture, and unity, but sacrificed the interest of Brazilian people and contributed to slavery. Brazil gained independence from Portugal in 1822, and the Brazilian president visited Europe for the first time earlier this year. The Brazilian government views Portugal and Spain as foreign relation priorities, both because of their membership in the Iberian-American community and the role they play in the framework of the European Union. Gotcha. And so looking at Europe's colonial colonial history and things like that, I, I know that Europe had a really close relation with the Catholic Church. And I know a lot of the rhetoric of the Catholic Church has been used in their foreign policies throughout history, as well as just their international relations in general. And so what was the role, if any at all, of the Catholic Church in promoting or facilitating the colonialism of these countries? The role of the Catholic Church um, definitely supported slavery through the doctrine of discovery, which was invoked as a legal and religious standing to rationalize Europe's colonial request. Their support for this resulted in the justification of destroying indigenous culture, livelihoods, and led to African enslavement. They also used this as a way to spread Catholicism and encouraged African slaves to convert. The Vatican's nullification was too late to stop the destructive impact of colonialism. Um, noting that European expansion was fueled by a sort of missionary sense that the Western monarchies had a right to go to these new lands and to take from their resources and, if necessary, to put people down, including enslaving them. Recently, the Church has stated that it stands with Indigenous people now and strongly supports the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which would help to protect Indigenous rights as well as improving living conditions and development in a way that respects their identity, language, and culture. So we can really see that deep entrenchment with European values in the past and present with the Catholic Church when it comes to colonialism and, and things like that as it's shifted the Catholic Church's view on it. Um, we see that happening with the states as well in Europe. Um, and so how have these African leaders, I know you touched on this a little bit, responded to the statements coming from the European powers? Have they prompted this situation? Are they merely in response to it? What's kind of their role here? 
African leaders have prompted the situation, and they've been speaking about national action to address the plan distributing financial reparations to formerly colonized countries and to the descendants of slavery victims on the basis that it's almost like the bare minimum for European nations to acknowledge the, their wrongdoings, but an apology doesn't fix all the issues that colonialism has caused. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and I'm sure we'll see that continue on as more of these countries come out with their statements and responses as well get more into that and they'll need to have physical reparations as well as you, like you were saying. And so I'm going to turn back to Iman and ask more about the effects of colonialism and why it's so important that we're having these acknowledgements and having these conversations about it. So what are some of the reasons behind such intense colonialism and the impact seen in society's victim to it? The colonizers' greed for one nation's natural resources causes that nation, a nation to be a victim of colonization. Once that territory is fully exploited, for the benefit, it leaves it unstable, and the worst part is it, it takes almost forever to recover from that exploitation. Colonialism also hurts indigenous cultures, languages, and traditions. That is why, unfortunately, many native cultures gradually lose knowledge of their ancestors. Additionally, colonial policies often created divisions within society, which also worsens pre-existing social in- inequalities. Colonial powers est- establish political, legal, and administrative institutions to maintain control and exploit local resources. When independence is eventually granted, these institutions often need more infrastructure or capacity to effectively govern and address the needs of the newly independent nations. The legacy of colonialism can also be seen in the persistence of attitudes and power dynamics that favor formal colonizers or perpetuate the perception of inferiority among the colonized populations. This can manifest in economic dependencies, cultural biases, and ongoing inequalities in international relations. So how did governments go about carrying out their colonial agendas in the past? So one of the main strategies that British colonial rule employed was a divide and rule approach. This strategy deliberately fostered existing ethnic divisions to prevent the people of the colony from uniting and challenging British authority. Additionally, the British exploited resentments among minority groups by favoring certain cultures that had historically held lower positions in the regions, social services, and military. The British began to start working within the Sudanese societies as part of their agendas. They implemented direct administration, expansion of education in northern Sudan, and they also downgraded the schools, limited the funds uh, allocated for education in the colonial budget, and also primarily directed towards uh, missionary schools in the South. African communities, rich social and political histories before colonizations were either disregarded or misrepresented as primitive remnants of a bygone era. Both medieval Arab writers and later Europeans shared a similar perspective regarding the history of Africa. And that goes into what you were saying earlier about that erasure of culture as like a tactic to oppress the colonies that they're working with. And so can you point us to another specific instance in which the effects of colonialism are having major impacts on a domestic level? Yeah, for sure. A nation's history and current challenges can be understood in the light, light of the impact of external factors such as colonialism and inter, international intervention. An example of a region where the effects of colonialism continue to have significant impact on a domestic level could be Western Sahara. Western Sahara is a territory in North Africa that has been subject of a long-standing dispute between the indigenous uh, Sahrawi people and Morocco. Their territory was colonized by Spain in the late 19th century, and when Spain withdrew in 1975, 
both Morocco and Mauritania claimed sovereignty over Western Sahara. This led to a conflict with the indigenous Sahrawi people who sought independence through the Polisario Front. The legacy of colonialism in Western Sahara is evident in the ongoing struggle for, for self-determination and the presence of a long, large number of Sahrawi refugees in camps in Algeria. The United Nations has been involving in trying to find a peaceful resolution, but the situation remains complex with ongoing human rights concerns and ge uh, ge geopolitical challenges. Gotcha. Thank you for helping, you know, provide another example so we can see how that's impacting things on the very recent scale, on a very recent level as well. I'm going to turn back to you, Soraya, and talk about using the United States as an example to kind of look at what colonialization means to, you know, a big superpower. I mean, obviously, we're all very familiar with the U.S. and, you know, how things tend to function over here. And so how has the United States participated in colonialization and similar systems? The United States has contributed to colonialism and certain systems by also contributing to the slave trade just as much as the European powers was, specifically through the Atlantic slave trade. And aside from that, they've also invaded former Spanish colonies, including Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. Gotcha. And so how has the U.S. responded to the international trend of providing apologies for this legacy of colonialism? Similar to the British government, the United States would prefer to not live in the past, and they've also gone as far as to changing um, state education laws regarding history and how we speak about slavery and Native American displacement. Annette Gordon-Reed, who is a history professor at Harvard University, said that using the term involuntary location to describe slavery threatens to blur out what occurred during that time in history, so there is no reason to use that proposed language. And some people also don't like the fact that that's being used because we're not teaching our children the truth and everyone deserves to know the history and have it being rooted in the truth. Could you expand a little on like what those contentions are with the federal and state governments um, as far as recognizing the colonial institutions and those reparations? Sure. So, for example, a second grade curriculum revised is referred to as the Texas Law. It dictates how slavery and issues of race are taught in Texas, stating that slavery cannot be taught as a true founding of the United States and that slavery was nothing more than a deviation from American values. So this kind of shows instead of acknowledging that it happened and we can't change that it happened, they prefer to just completely remove it out of the curriculum and not, not pay attention to like how it impacts people today. Mm -hmm. And really going even further into the race we were talking about earlier with not only are you erasing, you know, the cultures that you did through colonialism, but also the history of colonialism itself and that responsibility that comes with it. And so what reparations have been demanded by the U.S. government? What have we seen so far? While the, re while the issue of reparations for black people who are enslavement is regularly debated, similar rep reparations to indigenous people is also very rarely mentioned. It's often cited that they share the same history, culture, and language and experience prejudice and segregation. In comparison, various indigenous tribes encompassing dozens of different cultures and languages had vastly similar experiences. And according to the government, these differing experience makes arriving at a blanket reparation policy nearly impossible. So there's still like a demand for reparations, but the United States isn't really trying to focus on it. Or if they are, there's a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. I see. And so how have Native Hawaiian populations been in this whole conversation? I know that we have talked a lot about indigenous populations as well as the black community, but I know the Native Hawaiian population is also one that's experienced the colonialization of America as their state was 
annexed into the U.S. So how, where do they sit in this uh, conversation? Yes, so we recognize that the histories and treatment of Native Hawaiians and Native Americans are significant, significantly different. There remains a widely held perception that Native Hawaiians have received similar kinds of unfair treatment from the United States government as Native Americans. The apology resolution is thus seen as a means of acknowledging historical grievances that Native Hawaiians believe are valid. Some people also see it as a step towards identifying Native Hawaiians as indigenous people to preserve for them specific legal rights based on ancestry. The key point is that this is the beginning of a process to provide compensation or reparation to Native Hawaiians for alleged past injustice. Gotcha. And so, that can, so we can see here that the U.S. is taking a mildly different approach to some of the European countries in terms of recognizing and acknowledging that colonial history. So thank you for shedding some light on that and a good comparison with what we're seeing right now in Europe. And so turning back to you, Iman, I want to talk a little bit more about how has colonialism facilitated issues present in domestic governments, such as corruption? The legacy of European colonization, along with the division and man manipulation tactics employed by the colonial powers, has left deep socio-economic and political tensions within African society. Corruption issues in various parts, parts of African countries include Malawi, uh, South Africa's Nami. Namibia and Angola. In one of the researches, it mentions that the high-ranking officials and business leaders are involved in corruption, leading to severe harm to the economy and services for the citizens. The African Union is often critiqued because it failed to improve Africa's ongoing corruption. It further argues that these institutions must be more effective with their actions since it will help economic growth and poverty. Not only that, but the author emphasizes that holding leaders and officials accountable is essential to progress as a state economy, economically and social, socially. So how have more modern superpowers impacted or perpetuated the negative effects of colonialism? Foreign Affairs and Voice of America write about how these tensions were further escalated by interference of superpowers during the Cold War era, leading to the proliferation of armed conflicts and influx of weapons into the region. The internal strugg struggles faced by Africa, including military coups, power struggles, and economic hardships are the deep determination of the people to forge a better future free from external in interference and internal divisions. Africa's path to stability and progress ultimately lies in the acknowledgement in, in its historical context, working towards genuine democratic reforms and granting the people the power and agency to shape their destiny. Through such efforts, the African continent can overcome geopolitical challenges, heal internal wounds, and build a more inclusive and prosperous future for all its citizens. The people of many African countries have been denied the opportunity to govern and determine their fate and their aspirations for democracy often betrayed by those in power and international community that pledge support. Overcoming the post-colonial effects and the flawed institutions that they left behind is arduous. It requires addressing internal issues and challenging the structures of power and corruption deeply ingrained in many African countries. And that's definitely something that we've seen progress throughout history and I'm sure will continue to progress. Um, as time moves forward, obviously it's a very ongoing process and cannot be fixed in a day or with just a simple acknowledgement. It's definitely something to, to be working on uh, systemically. And so just to wrap up our conversation, I want to turn to you, Soraya, first and just ask, what does it mean for colonialism in the traditional sense to be gone? 
Colonialism in the traditional sense to be gone is rooted in constructive dialogue, reconciliation, and reparative justice. I also think that it's important that colonized previously colonized countries should receive more representation in global politics with the platform to speak and advocate for issues that impacted their country because of colonialism from a humanitarian-based approach. Similar to the president of Portugal, political leaders from colonizer countries could work with political le leaders from colonized countries, providing them advice and help to advance their political, economic, and social systems that is heavily influenced by the impact of colonialism. It could either be financially, politically, socially, but as long as it's reparations and there's dialogue and teamwork, I think that would be um, be the right path for it to be gone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so turning to you, Iman, I want to ask, how can we see the effects of colonialism in the present conflict going on today, such as the situation between Israel and Palestine? I know it's been a very hot topic lately. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great question. I'm glad that you brought it up. After having conversations with so many people from Palestine, Israel, sometimes you would uh, realize how much of their culture, especially Palestinian food, cuisine, uh, songs, uh, music has been eradicated or are the people who are uh, present in the new generation, they don't have that much of access to knowledge or access to their homelands as the previous generations did. So there are definitely a lot of effects of colonialism that you can see, especially because this is a very huge displacement issue that was caused by the British. So, yes. Yeah, so that's absolutely something that's deeply entrenched in past conflicts, present conflicts, and I'm sure future conflicts will maintain this kind of air of history of colonialization as being kind of a um, cataclysm for a lot of those um, tensions that lead to those conflicts um, in general. So I just want to say this has been a really great discussion and thank you both so much for coming on and sharing your research and sharing your thoughts with us. Bye everyone. Bye, thanks so much for having us. Joining me now to round up some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Megan Pitt. Hey Megan. Hi. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Pope Francis fires Texan bishop critical of his leadership. Town in Iceland evacuated over concerns of volcanic eruption, politics invade Taylor Swift concert in Argentina, and anti-government protest breaks out in Honduras. All right, lots of interesting stories to cover today. So let's start with the bishop in Texas. Texan Bishop Joseph Strickland has been fired by Pope Francis following intense criticism of the Vatican's progressive reforms. The Pope has recently made movements to change the Church's views on social issues, such as same-sex marriage and gender equality to become more inclusive. Bishop Strickland openly rejected his actions, claiming that the basic truths of Catholicism were being challenged. As a result of Strickland's open disapproval of Pope Francis's actions, he has been fired. That's a very interesting connotation with uh, contention within church leaders. And the volcanic eruption? Icelandic authorities evacuated residents of Grindavik over concerns of volcanic eruption on Saturday, November 11th. The town of about 4,000 people experienced several earthquakes overnight, increasing the likelihood of volcanic activity. The evacuation was not considered an emergency evacuation, so residents were given two to three hours to remove themselves from the area. Authorities warned them not to return for several days. Nearby towns have experienced similar seismic activity and have thus closed tourist locations such as the spa location, the Blue Lagoon. Scientists are working to investigate data, the Weather Service reported. We'll all be sure to keep our attention on Iceland and see what comes of that situation. And now tell me more about Taylor Swift. On Thursday, November 9th, Taylor Swift performed her first ever concert in Argentina on the second leg of the Eras Tour. Upon arrival to the stadium in Buenos Aires, fans were greeted with political posters urging against the election of Javier Malay, a self-described anarcho-capitalist. One poster read, a Swifty doesn't vote Malay. 
Some fans agreed with the sentiment, arguing that Swift would stand against Malay's conservative positions. Others felt that fans shouldn't force Swift's name onto political ideologies. That's quite the intersection of pop music and politics over there. And our last story? On Saturday, November 11th, thousands of people took to the streets of Honduras' capital to protest against President Ziamara Castro. After the ruling leftist party elected an interim chief prosecutor without a congressional vote, Hondurans began to fear a dictatorship in the nation. Some have argued that Casho is attempting unconstitutional movements to acquire power. David Chavez, president of the right-wing National Party, stated the necessity of the protests to protect democracy. Thank you so much for coming on, Megan. So that's all the time we have today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on our upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Kasia Kastraba and Juliana Mori, technical producers Ashley Skladani and Emilia Vensachinsky, and of course your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thanks, y'all.